Welcome back to Recent Memories, where we reconsider what really mattered from 1979 to 2009, one year and one conversation at a time. The year is 1983. It's peak Reagan, Thriller, MTV, Bird vs. Magic. You've heard those stories before. We're going to talk about the other ones. This is Season 1, Episode 4. Person of the Year, Lawrence Turow. And here's the question we want to answer for history. When she sat on Mr. T's lap and kissed his cheek at the White House Christmas party, was Nancy Reagan confirming something that most of America already knew? That Lawrence Turow, AKA Mr. T, and not Ronald Reagan, actually had the best year of any American in 1983. Some people expect a free ride through life, cruising by on good looks and look. Let me tell you something right now. It don't work that way. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back to my co-creator, Kevin Blake. And as always, we have an esteemed panel joining us this week who have presumably done very little research, are experts in almost nothing, but but oddly have a great deal of uh, education on Mr. T through Clubber Lang, through B.A. Baracus. So they might actually bring something to bear in this episode and our friends and family this time on the panel are my brother Judd Wishnow and our dear, dear friends, Christian Anthony and Josh Kaufman. So happy to have them here and so excited to get into the episode. Kevin, I'm gonna give you the floor because this was, uh, this was your pitch. You wanna tell us a little bit about why you selected this story and, and really what your thesis is and what question you want us to answer? So I saw this picture of Mr. T dressed very loosely like Santa Claus, meaning mohawk, gold, tube socks, but just like a gentle red robe over his shoulders Mm -hmm. in the middle of the White House with Nancy Reagan on his lap, kissing him. And my first thought, other than the obvious latent racist undertones, which this podcast is obviously not set up to address, that picture seems so locked in a particular moment in time that I thought, how can you talk about 1983 without talking about Mr. T? When I thought more about Mr. T and did a little more research, I was overwhelmed, but not just by that picture, but by how amazing his 1983 was. He was on the A-Team, which functionally the entire country was watching. (laughs) Um, He was a lead in a movie directed by young Joel Schumacher. His products were everywhere. And I just thought almost like that Babe Ruth line about how he had a better year than uh, Calvin Coolidge. And that's why I got paid more. I think Mr. T had a better year than Ronald Reagan. And when I saw that Time Magazine, you know, obviously, which was a pretty conservative publication in the early 80s, gave the Man of the Year award to Reagan, I thought that might be an injustice. And I thought we needed to talk through whether when you put Mr. T's year into focus, whether he really was the man of 1983, meaning two things. One, he had the best 1983, and two, that year, his year could only happen in 1983. Okay, so we're here to right or wrong. I, I was, there was an injustice and it's time to fix it. So Kev, you know, when, when you showed me the photo and I started thinking about Mr. T, it's like a sort of a strange story came to mind. So like six months ago, my son Leo asked me just randomly, he said, you know, dad, why does everyone hate the New England Patriots so much? And I said, ooh, you know, that's, that's kind of complicated. Uh, one is because they win a lot. You know, they're the best team. Two, they've been caught cheating a bunch. And I said, and three, 
you know, they, they once had a tight end who killed a few people. And, um, and Leo looked at me, I clearly had unnerved him because the next morning he woke up early and came to my bedroom and said, hey dad, can I ask you a question privately? And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, I really don't understand how anyone could like the Patriots if they kill people. <laughs> and, and I bring this question up because the look on his face, his five-year-old look reminded me a little bit of the feeling I had when I first saw Mr. T when I was like nine, because I didn't understand whether he was really wanted to hurt people, whether the threats were real. I, I just couldn't understand why people liked him and whether how I was supposed to like him. And I, I'll say even, even now, however many years later, almost 40 years later, there's never been anyone like Mr. T. I was trying, like, The Rock wasn't like Mr. T. I can't think of someone who is positioned as a hero who is so unflinchingly threatening. Yeah, I, it's a great, so you sent me an amazing YouTube clip of Mr. T doing like almost PSA announcements. I think mm -hmm. it was in the cartoon where he's screaming into the, into the camera, but it's stuff that's like really, nice but threatening there's one where he yells at everybody to be nice to new kids in your town when you put that energy in the middle of the reagan white house there's something about that that has to be the moment of 1983. he's in a room so this is the white house christmas party everybody's there but everybody in 1983 is pretty different than mr t's circle it's like Casper Weinberger, probably like maybe Rumsfeld's invited, you know, people of that ilk. And rather than everybody watching them, Mr. T is in his full T getup and the first lady's on his lap and he's handing out dolls of himself and air fresheners, yeah. right? And when, yeah. Miss, when, when Nancy Reagan kisses him, he yells, wow, wow, growl, wow, Burt Reynolds, eat your heart out. Yeah, I was I was trying to paint a picture of who was in the room. So yes, Casper Weinberger, Lizzie Dole was in the cabinet at that time in 83, George Schultz, of course, and then George Herbert Walker. And then I was wondering if GW was there, like a young GW. I, so I, I heard, I read this story that George H.W. Bush was so taken by his meeting of, with Mr. T at the party that he had a picture of the two of them on his piano in his home. Basically for the duration of his life. Like, think about all the people that he's met. He wanted people to like use that as a conversation piece. Yeah. That he and he were friends. And I think like there's something about his energy and charisma that meshed with the Reagan White House in 1983. And that's why I wanted to really do a deep dive. I look at that photo and I read a little bit about it on Wiki. You know, you, you have the Reagans, they hired a black man to dress in a ridiculous outfit and work his ass off. Uh, to entertain a crowd who basically wanted nothing to do with him. Did you read the the comment that literally no one would sit on his lap, even Helen Thomas? Yes. Um, and yeah. so, you know, I, my whole thought on when I saw this, all joking aside, was to me this was a photo op for Nancy. So, Kevin, I, I read that same quote that Judd that Judge shared about Helen Thomas. Do you think the implication was that Helen Thomas was just sort of progressive socially or that she was desperate sexually in, in some way when they said even Helen Thomas wouldn't sit on T's lap? Uh, uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, as we discussed, I, I, it's hard for me to understand this setting. 
if you think about any other first lady or any other action star, it's hard to understand, like, I don't know the equivalent would be in the 50s, but could you, like, Mamie Eisenhower sitting on somebody's lap? Or, you know, like, if Michelle Obama was sitting on, like, Stone Cold Steve, Steve Austin, Stone Cold Steve Austin's lap? Like, yeah. there's something that's so incongruous. I mean, Helen Thomas could have not, not sat on it because it's really strange, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a really strange dynamic. Yeah, T, yeah, T might have been too hot. Like, I think on some level he was too hot. <laughs> I heard that he was actually asked to leave before dessert was served. No, really? I don't, I don't know anything about it um, and didn't read anything about it. Although I did look at the White House staff and, and just to draw a present day connection, I think Bill Barr was there. <laughs> and I also think Bolton was there. Um, oh, sure Bolton was there. But I, I, actually, I think we're missing this a little bit, which is I actually think T had the last laugh. I don't think he cared whether... You know, he was, why he was there and what the circumstances were. If I was blown away with his Wikipedia and where he came from, what issues he was ahead of and what he did when he took his gold off after being in Katrina. Like th this is a man with heart and anger. I, I, <laughs> I, I mean this very sincerely. I think he is levels ahead of anybody at that party. So I, I like the um, Mr. T was in a different league theory. I think I think it probably bears repeating a little bit a little bit of his history because Christian sort of brought it up. T's from I think De Decatur, Illinois. I believe uh, Kevin, keep me honest here. I believe he enlisted in the army and had an extraordinary military career. Am I right? Well, so he he got extraordinary. I think the, the thing that he's like noted for was. He got in trouble and the sergeant assigned him the task of cutting down trees and he chopped down 70 of them in three and a half hours. <laughs> so he, he did have a, a brief stint in college where he played college football. He couldn't, you know, the academic part wasn't for, for T. Um, so he became a bouncer at a Chicago nightclub where he developed the Mr. T persona. Up to then, he had been Lawrence Turow. And... He was such a famous bouncer, which again seems a little anachronistic, that he became uh, basically a bodyguard for people like uh, Diana Ross and Muhammad Ali. And there was a television show, there was a television show called Toughest Bouncer in America, yeah. where, Stallone, where, where Sly Stallone spots him and says, this guy's gotta be in Rocky Three. Yeah. So what do you think Stallone saw was he watching the show for that purpose or was he just watching TV and stumbled on it? And, and what, do you think, what do you think he saw and what do you think he was looking for? Well, I think that, you know, and the, those shows were actually the precursors to the UFC. Like yeah. there was a concept before it called Tough Man that yeah. I think those evolved into or something. And if you know Mr. T's record in those, he was winning three round fights in 51 seconds. They didn't even make it out of the first round. Uh -huh. So like, and, and I actually, as I, as I thought about this, there's, there's a very interesting theme and Maddie, I think you brought up the rock. I, I actually think he so missed his window where Mr. Mm -hmm. T could have been a multi-decade iconic leader. I think he was just like a little bit off timing wise for things that could have brought his message to the world. And I think it's an interesting thing to explore, but I'll come back to the tough man thing. 
So yes, I first of all, I think Stallone is home. I think he's on an enormous couch. Um, one that you and I would appreciate <laughs> and know how to lay out. And I think he's sort of half in, half out of consciousness. And he sees this thing and he perks up. Uh, so I, I actually think there's like a interesting parallel between Stallone spotting T and the way Jurgen spots Rocky. Oh, yes, for sure. In Rocky <laughs> 1. Like, I, I think there's something like he needs somebody and, you know, he's going through Mackley Green. He's going through different people. And all of a sudden, <laughs> he sees T. And, like, the same way that, like, Apollo gets really excited. Like, it's very – no, no, no. It's not very American. It's very smart. That I picture Stallone in a room with a lot of business people debating. And it's in the background yeah. where the TV's on, right? And he goes, shh, 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 like that. And he goes, watch this. He goes, that's the guy we need. But, do, but don't you think there's a fascinating, like you're coming, like think about the Stallone villains. Like you're coming off Apollo and then why does T fit? You have to up the ante. You literally have to up the ante. You have to remember, Stallone is literally a genius at casting. He made a guy like Burt Young a household name. He, he, he literally took Burgess Meredith from, you know, obscurity to superstardom. You have someone like- <laughs> Burgess Meredith you have someone like, was a huge star. You know, you you bring in someone like Mr. T. I don't think it was a hard call for him. Like that was that was that was like like a scoop of vanilla, scoop of chocolate. I, I do think there's an interesting trajectory in the first four Rockies where each opponent ends up getting stripped of empathy and likability. I mean, Apollo, yes. Apollo, as hateable as he was, everyone admired him, knew he was great, and they showed enough of his family where it was hard to despise him. Clubber, like he has no family. He 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 lives alone. He trains alone. He eats alone, and 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 kills Mickey. So he's eminently hateable. And then the only way to one up that was basically to insert like a cyborg, like a you know a steroid injected cyborg in four. There's something. I wonder if the hateability of the villains made the films better or worse, or if we were missing. <laughs> Well, Maddie, let me add something to that. Cause I think that's a like, if, if you take that though, you know, both Apollo and Drago, and I'd love the group's thought on this, both Apollo and Drago came back as part of that redemption. How does Stallone bring T back for redemption? That's a great question. That's a great, so that's, that, that pub, in my mind, that's the most unanswered question in all of the Rockies, which is why the second greatest fighter of that generation, Clubber Lang, just falls off the face of the I earth. I always think about I it. I think it's the Mickey murder. I mean, say what you want about what Drago did to Apollo. It, it was in the ring, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. For him to shove a, a frail Jewish manager and kill him, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think there's, I don't think you can. I, don't, I think the audience would have revolted if you bring no, him. But are you, is the implication that like the authorities told him like lay low and like, we'll forget about it, but. It's manslaughter. I mean, I mean, he, he's legally culpable. Well, Kev, if you're, if you're a defense attorney, yeah. do you take the, do you take the Drago defense or the Lang defense as a winnable case? Oh, oh, I think Drago, I, I think charging, charging Drago would be a miscarriage of justice. And I think the referee if I were, the fight, if I were defending away. Lang, I would say you need to plea out. Like, I don't know, you know, like, it's on camera. You shoved <laughs> him for no reason. And like, he, he invited James Brown dancing. And then yeah. I, I don't think, and then, I mean, I think in terms of moral culpability, 
I think Rocky had might have more moral culpability yeah. than Drago. And yeah, Kevin, wait a minute. I mean, I could, <laughs> we, could talk, we could talk tobacco litigation all day. What about <laughs> what about Mickey's underlying condition? I'm, I'm with Does you, Sam. Sam, with you. Stand in court. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm with you. M Mickey, Mickey was basically a, a light breeze away from death's door. I, 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 I don't I, want to pull rank here, but but yeah, ask your wife. Um, okay, I look at yeah. I mean, the boys. The boys at Wachtell Lipton did pretty well with Philip Morris for a long time with that defense. <laughs> what, uh, what, what, uh, is, what is what is Clubber line? What what is 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 it manslaughter? What does he get? It's manslaughter. No, I think I, I think I think he walks out scot free on Christian's point he, that Mickey had horrible underlying conditions. Anyway, all right. Well, we're getting so anyway we're getting a little far afield, but to bring it back, so Rocky Three, as we all know, is is 1982, right? And that puts Mr. T, Lawrence Thoreau, on a different level. And now he's really ready to be rolled out to America. Yes. And the way that happens is through two different vehicles, the most famous being the A-Team. It, it's hard to, in today's world, understand how popular the A-Team was. Um, every week, 20% of Americans were watching. That, that's insane. Like it, mm -hmm. it, it beat some week's Monday Night Football. And it was beloved. And the character that Mr. T played was B.A. Baracus. The B.A. stood for bad attitude. Mm -hmm. yep. And again, it was this combination of being extremely angry and wildly confrontational with a kind of soft spot. Like, so they made him, the only thing that he really had was he was angry, he was a good mechanic, and he was neurotic. Um, and, and he wouldn't fly. Right, that was yeah, his neurosis. Was neurosis. Yeah, yeah, they had to. I mean, they drugged him. Yeah, uh, on almost every episode, it was like a question of like drugging <laughs> this crazy guy so they could fly him away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Can I? Can so just for those who either didn't see the movie or don't remember the show, the premise of the A Team is um, it ran for about five seasons, and that it was four special forces sort of army vets who were convicted, uh, court-martialed, but not convicted, rather, court-martialed for a crime they didn't commit. They escape a military prison, and then they're on the run as mercenaries to the extraordinarily wealthy in incredible situations, right? And outside of B.A. Baracus, the, you know, the main cat, the main stars were Hannibal, played by George Papard, who is not just sort of the organizer and the brains behind it, but is described as a master of disguise then there's Face Man, Murdoch, um, who's the crazy pilot and driver. Now, I, I didn't remember this about, about Murdoch, Kevin. Maybe you did. But Murdoch was institutionalized in a veteran's hospital. So any time they needed a driver or pilot, the A-team had to bust him out of a hospital to get the... So every single episode, so however many seasons, like for 80 or 100 episodes, they had to bust the crazy guy out of, out of the hospital to get him to be part of the mission. There's a weird, there's a weird mental health message in the A team, and it seems pretty cruel for B. A. Baracus that if he's deathly afraid of flying, that they're busting out people who are institutionalized to fly him around. Yeah, and, and, and then and drugging him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. My favorite part of the A-Team was not when they would drug Mr. T, but when he would be in the air and then would occasionally wake up, he would actually have to act as a terrified person who would then pass out again. And 
you know, he would he would do a lot of like sniffing and then, uh, you know, eyes kind of rolling into the back of his head. And it was the most acting that he ever did. And if any of you have ever seen it, any one of us on this panel could act like drugged, passed out people better than Mr. T. It, he, he is completely <laughs> incapable of any... Um, any sort of versatility within his act. <laughs> so Matt, there's actually, that's a good segue to a quote that I saw from Mr. T that I really like. When he was asked by a reporter whether he'd ever seen the 18 movie that came out more recently, yeah. he said, I didn't watch the 18 movie. I'm an artist. You can't repaint a Rembrandt. You just can't duplicate <laughs> that. I don't care who you get. We had lightning in a bottle, so just leave it alone. No, I didn't watch it. I was in the real thing. I didn't need to watch it. So I think I have a theory about my theory, my overriding theory about Mr. T, I think flows from that well, which is I, I think it might be the opposite of what Christian said. I think he might have hit a window where there was literally nothing going on. And like literally somebody with almost no talent of any kind who had some charisma and it was a little distinctive um, could have broken through in the way he did. I, my theory is he could have only done it in 1983. And my backup for that is when I Googled 1983 for this podcast, it's literally the most uninteresting, boring, vacant year ever. Uh, I couldn't find anything. I'm curious what you guys did, but- We hope the, the listeners are enjoying it. I know, I take issue, I take, <laughs> we take uh, the proprietors of recent memories take issue with that. I will, so I'm on, I'm on Team Juice on this argument, and as I think I'm the only one who recently rewatched DC Cab. Has, did anyone, CA, do you remember watching it when it first came out? Yeah. All right, let me, let me tell you a little about DC Cab, and I'm going to use it as jujitsu against your argument, Christian. DC Cab came out in early 83, and the premise of, of it is Albert Hockenberry wants to save his late father's war buddies cab company, and he has to assemble a motley crew of cab drivers for the DC Cab company to save it against the local rival Emerald Cab Company. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about who's in the movie. Uh, Mr. T plays Samson. One of the, you know, one of the DC cab drivers. Also in that Motley crew is Gary Busey, Marsha Warfield from Night Court, Bill Maher, comedian Paul Rodriguez. Um, it was written and directed by Joel Schumacher. And having watched the movie, here are some of my observations. Not only can Mr. T not act, he, he, he's only capable of speaking in one tone. It's the I pity the full tone. And after about every five or six words, he has to stop either to breathe or to think about what the next words are. And then he just says the next words in the same tone. The other thing is, and, and this, I'm having trouble reconciling this with Rocky Three, so maybe you guys will have, have an opinion on this. Mr. T can't move. He's, he's, he's asked to dance or to do other physical things in the movie. And he is stiff as a board. He's, so I left watching DC Cab basically saying the difference between him and say The Rock is that The Rock has range and talent and Mr. T had one mode and one talent. And that, that's honestly what I left DC Cab. Well, I, I've, I gotta respond on this because I feel very strongly. And, and I, appreci I appreciate those, those, those arguments. Think about th this, and I'll, I, I'm not making a talent argument. So I'll, I'll even give you guys the talent piece, but let's look at who this guy's life yarn has intersected with. Okay, mm -hmm. we've already got the Christmas party and you know the world leaders of the time. Okay. This guy is in is in Eddie Murphy references. He's in Puff Daddy, Kanye songs. This guy was one of the earliest purveyors of PSAs 
and do good messaging. He's touched Stallone, Rowdy Roddy Piper. He appeared, <laughs> he appeared in, a, in a video for Hitachi Data Systems, okay? This was one of his commercials that completely predicted the data storage boom, okay? This guy has touched everything. He's at Katrina, rescuing people, taking off his gold. He's at the forefront of every major political and social issue across decades. So, uh, so I'm sorry. Like, so this guy I, has touched everyone. So here's the claim I would make. I think Mr. T might be more like the Forrest Gump of his generation than, than like The Rock. He's just somebody who happened to be in the right place at the right time, time and time again, rather than somebody who was there on merit. Because having watched DC Cab, I really can't find the merit. The Rock followed and plugged himself in to already existing things. It's like the guy yes. starts with an eyebrow raise and now he's got a vodka line or a tequila line, okay? <laughs> You're like five years late on the tequila line, okay? But he'll do great with it. Mr. T was the one who kicked those doors yes, in. Yes, I'll give you that. And, and I think the, that's a huge difference. I'll give you T as the pioneer. I want to circle back to the A-team in, in a moment. But first, I just wanted to pose one thing to, to the group. DC Cab cost $7 million to make and made $16 million at the box office. I just want to give you a comparison, though. Team Wolf cost $1.2 million and made $80 million. What did DC Cab spend the $7 million on? And he, I only have, I, I really don't know. I, I, I have no idea. Gary Busey was like five years away, five years removed from a Golden Globe Award nomination. So I'm wondering if, if Busey signed on for like six and a half million. DC Cab is the cheapest made movie I've ever seen. It, it really does make Revenge of the Nerds, which it, it, which it kind of presages a bit, look like Jurassic Park. It is such a cheap movie. Well, I, Matt, I assume Mr. T got paid a lot of money for that. He was already a household name, no? It was early, it was coming. So that's the other question. Do we think that T negotiated hard and got like $5 million for the appearance? I, th actually, I think T had all back end. I feel no, like no, Don I, King I might have been involved. I think T was the biggest expense. I, I, for the life of me, guys, I can't figure out. It's the shittiest. It's like the, the lowest quality movie I've ever seen. What, right, about, let's... what about Schumacher blowing it all on poor special effects? Oh, right. Poor special effects or like <laughs> a, below the, a below the line item, which is sort of just described as admin, which is like cocaine and hookers. <laughs> but guys, wait, this is unfair. Like, if you compare this to Teen Wolf, sure. But like this movie made money theatrically. Let's yeah, not top line. That. Yeah, top line. It did. It did. People came to CT after Rocky Three without yeah. question. Let's circle back to the A team. The A team ended, you know, about four or five years after it started. I just want to run through a quick list of some of the guest stars who graced the screen, the small screen on the A team, and just kind of get some some quick thoughts on on how this makes people think about the A team. Some some of the great names: uh, musician Isaac Hayes. Wow. Uh, musician Rick James, uh, the legendary Joe Namath, uh, William the Refrigerator Perry. Those are big names. Boy George, Pat Sajak, and Vanna White. And then Hulk Hogan uh, also appeared with Paul Orndorff and the British Bulldogs in an episode. What, what, wow. is, what does that say about the A-Team? Well, Everyone. it says one thing to me, which is that 90% of those are there because of Mr. T. And 
the, the only person, Pat Sajak was pulled by Face or Papard. Everybody else is there because it's <laughs> I love the conversation between Mr. T and the British Bulldogs. Do you assume that T asked them? Like, are you saying that Mr. T, like they said, T, do you think you can get the Bulldogs on? And he's like, I'll try. And he, then he calls the Bulldogs. There seemed to be some, there seemed to be some discord between Papard and T, which I, which I really liked that T dismissed. But I wonder if there was some friction because all the great guest stars were coming because of T. Yeah. And then Papard overcompensates and like gets Burt Lancaster to come and like pull <laughs> this like old Hollywood thing where T's getting Orndorf and Papard's getting <laughs> Lancaster. I think they also, there was a struggle for, ta for tagline supremacy between the two. So if you guys remember, Hannibal's tagline was, I love it when a great plan comes together. And T had a bunch of taglines. Obviously, I pity the fool. But he also used to say Hannibal's on the jazz when Hannibal was sort of like masterminding something. And I think there might have been a little bit of competition between the two for who could get a better tagline. What you doing, sucker? Uh, I think I'll get out for a minute. What's going on here? This road leads directly to the airport, Hannibal. This road is nowhere near the airport. Without question, the A-Team was epic. It was extraordinarily popular, very cheaply made, uh, pretty poorly acted, but incredibly popular and, and of the moment. And it, it really was Mr. T who made that possible. It's a cultural force where there's nothing comparable now. I think that, Kevin, brings us a little bit to Mr. T's special sauce. So there's a, couple, there's a bunch of questions. I think we started scratching at it in the Rocky Three discussion where we were ostensibly getting to, did Mr. T, was Mr. T the pioneer, a self-made pioneer, or did Stallone make him? Here's, here's a question that you posed to me, and I didn't have an answer, so I wanted to throw it to the panel. In the 83 White House Christmas party, Mr. T was giving out air fresheners. What did they smell like? Oh, I, that's, that's obvious for me. Well, uh, Judd, please, you have the floor. This is really why you were invited. So um, for me, and, and again, I, was never, I never actually had any personal contact with T, so I, this is based on my, my best estimate, but I think I'm probably right on. I think Mr. T smelled like um, a cedar closet. And... <laughs> And I'll, there's a few reasons. There's, there's two reasons. One, as Matt will know, we had a very scary um, loft-like bedroom uh, in the back of our house that none of us went into. Uh, it was usually used by, we had, we had occasional housekeepers live with us and they had a black and white television up there. And in that same room was a cedar closet. And I remember multiple times going up there when our housekeeper was watching the A-Team and the smell of the cedar closet was very, very distinct. Um, I still love that smell, by the way. And I actually, aside from the fact that um, I associate the cedar closet smell with that room where the A-team was being watched, I actually think Mr. T smells like cedar closet. Yeah, that's a great call. It's a great call. So, all right, so here's a question. This question for the group. After the Christmas party, what percentage of Reagan's cabinet's cars smelled like cedar closets? Oh, oh, a hundred percent. So I, 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 I think, I think no matter how much disdain or fear or admiration anyone in that room had, I think privately they hung the tea air freshener proudly. I, unlike Judd, I'm not a super smeller. So just for the group, other things I thought 
it could have smelled like. Fine leather, fine leather was one. <laughs> fear is another, the smell of fear. <laughs> Actually, look, and, then, and then pain. Those were the three wow. things I thought they could smell. I thought it might smell like. By the way, I, I think you guys might be overthinking this a little bit. Whenever I think of Mr. T, I think of there was a magician who worked the Burger King birthday parties in my town in Michigan where I was growing up. And he was a little bit similar. He was a huge guy who was mean to all the kids when they went up on stage to do a trick with him. But everyone loved him. And all of his candy was always had a cotton candy theme to it. And it made everyone so happy. I think, honestly, he, he was the biggest star in my town by a factor of 10. I think the talent level was almost identical. He did just pure happiness. I think the air freshener is honest. I think they smell like cotton candy. <laughs> so, Ke Ke Kevin, you've, you've, been, um, you've been patient and reserved as Christian and I and the panel have sort of, you know, chewed on Mr. T's special sauce. So when you look at the picture of, in the Washington Post, of Nancy Reagan on Mr. T's lap, there's something about the spent rage, the domestication of rage, that seems familiar. Mm -hmm. We've done now four stories about 1983. So we have that look, I think, also on George Brett's face at the very end of the pine tar mm -hmm. incident where he just seems like, I think the phrase used is like, he, he like hyper-cycled through stages of grief and then just went limp. There's just something in 1983 about this vacillation between intense sporadic rage followed by deep contentment that I think mm. we're seeing. And I, you know, when we're, when we're trying to make a picture of who's the man of 1983, I think that we're seeing this face over and over again points at the fact that it, Mr. T here, we're at Christmas, the end of 1983, like this is the apex of the year. This is the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about Mr. T's anger that is both frightening, but the way he presents it comforting, mm -hmm. that I think makes people drawn to him. And I think there's something about 83, the way that he like tamed anger and the way that Miss Nancy Reagan sitting on his lap is almost the embodiment of that. It is like the domestication of just rage. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's something that just made him very popular that people could watch that degree of anger without getting hurt or that so, he, anger would be used for, for good. First of all, I think that's brilliant. Let me play this back to you. So T was almost like a collective national projection of our rage that in, in a possibly racist but definitely sort of uh, like hegemonic co-optation of it ended up on, ended up in the White House with Nancy Reagan kind of on its lap, kissing it at the end of the year. A hundred, I think that's exactly, that's my take. So I did a little research on this and uh, I think it's exactly what Kevin said. I feel like yeah. America was desperate for exactly what Mr. T was offering in a moment that could have, that he could have not broken through on any other in any other period all right so all right so let me ask this question I, I i totally agree but ca since you disagree do you think mr t's anger was something that he invented because he knew it was the moment that it would sell or do you think that that's truly who he is well i i i think there's two issues here that i want to split I, I and i think your summary of the times and what he represented is spot on. 
The only the only slight modification I would I would distinguish between rage and aggression. Mm-hmm. I think he was our aggressor, and 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 I obviously you know found it in rage, but but I I think that was what was the times and what he embodied and what he was our vehicle. But but then I think you come to the second issue, which is the times make the man, does the man make the times, and I I do think there's an element with him where he was well suited for what was happening at the time. So in that sense, I'll give you guys that, yeah, he was a a man of his time. But I also think you cannot ignore the things that he tried to do, that he identified, or that he was ahead of, that the times didn't support, and where he may have failed or missed his window. So if you think about, like, maybe... CA, like a person that 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 script I think is really good makes you think of is like Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report in the Bush years. And I think Stephen Colbert would clearly would say, I'm playing a character to like summon up the zeitgeist of 2004. Do you think Mr. T saw himself as playing a character? That's a good question. I, my gut reaction is. I, and this, this goes to your White House dinner. I think Mr. T had a sense of self-worth and self-awareness where he thought he was ahead of everybody else. So I think his perception was he thought he was create, that people were following his creation. In actuality, I think it's closer to what you said. As a, as a follow-up CA then, what, how much credit is to Stallone for recognizing that T was was embodying the zeitgeist versus T for relentlessly kind of working his way up step by step from army to bouncer to you know to celebrity. Huge. I I I think it's a true partnership where I think Stallone he doesn't get there without Stallone's recognition and packaging, but he's doing a lot of things right to get that recognition. I, I know that Stallone had a great eye for talent. It's indisputable. And I also certainly uh, concede that Mr. T was the man of the moment in 1983. But I want to pose a different question. And I'm doing it, you know, sort of 51% academically, or, or maybe provocatively, and then 49% from an, from an earnest place. We don't really know a lot about how tough of a tough man T was, or or I should say, we don't have a lot of evidence. I've scoured the internet for video evidence of the toughest bouncer competition, found nothing, which I think is curious. All I've seen him, the only people I've seen him fight are Rowdy Roddy Piper and one other wrestler. And he's sort of lumbering. He's also undersized. Like Mr. T is like maybe five foot 10. Like he looks big compared to Stallone, but everyone looks big compared to Stallone. And, and basically this is what we know about T. Although he beat, Balboa in the first fight. Balboa was basically catatonic every round after Mickey's death. And then the second fight, he gets annihilated and never returns to the ring. We know that he, you know, chops down a lot of trees. And we know that he likes to talk tough to kids. But, <laughs> but, but I, I'm not sure that he's ever faced a real opponent. So I just want to ask, ask the group, what evidence do we have that Mr. T is not a pussy? So, I mean, Muhammad Ali chose him to, to guard him. Uh, yeah. so that, that says something. Hey, Kev, what if, so I, I was sort of deep, deep diving the dark web, and I found on one message board that that's actually a misnomer, 
and that he was he was really the bodyguard for Leon Spinks. If that's if that's true, does that change? Does that no. change it? No, no, it doesn't. No. no. You're talking about the point zero 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 one toughest people in the world. All right. So 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 the only defense that you have is that that T was the bodyguard to either Muhammad Ali or Leon Spinks. That's because I feel like that's in the court of law. You're not confident going with that case. I feel pretty good about that. I mean, I think a little bit depends on like what you mean by pussy. I mean, I mean, he played college football. He was a bodyguard. He was yeah. a bouncer. Yeah. He looks, I mean, he's, he, he's certainly in good shape. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's the undercurrent of just how nice he is. And even though he's yelling when he does PSAs, uh, telling people to like cough in their arms, like whether, whether that like undercuts his tough guy persona, I'm not sure. It's a tube socks. So I can think of two defenses for him, and I think they're both pretty powerful. The first defense is the fact that he has the courage to leave his house looking the way he does and to show up and go in, to enter into the paradigms that he enters into mm-hmm. wearing what he wears. Like, if I have a shirt that's 12% too big or large, I feel self-conscious all day. He's walking around with, like, people in suits, people in different outfits, and he's wearing a mohawk. Uh, a vest with the arms ripped out like he 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 knows who he is and I feel like he's comfortable with it and to me that that that's a real type of genuine manly courage and then in my research I found an episode that that I felt was very persuasive uh, and that was when he beat cancer I think in the like in the mid 90s Uh, I'll just give a couple of quotes to back up the point that I think speak for themselves Uh, So he once said, and I don't have the exact context for this, but he once said, if you don't remind me I have cancer, then I won't remember because I'm too busy living. That doesn't (laughs) sound like somebody that fears a tough opponent. And then the second one is, and I thought this was uh, both creative and courageous. uh, He said, and this this was uh, to Cancer, he he said this to Cancer Magazine about coping with his T-cell lymphoma. Uh, He said, can you imagine that cancer with my name on it? personalized cancer and that was all he said and to me that was just kind of like the t-cell he thought the t-cell was named after him whether it was specifically named after or not it's got his name on it and he wasn't he wasn't gonna let anything with his name on it beat him it was very clear that's pretty good all right i'll 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 leave this one be because as you know i do think that he was the person of the year for 83 but here's here's what i would say whether or not he was tough i don't know you guys provide good good arguments i'm just not sure other than the cancer bout um that he actually was tested by an opponent his great opponent was mickey yeah and uh and he resorted to crime and he killed him that's right (laughs) (laughs) now everybody listen up we're gonna talk about strangers you gotta learn how to deal with them you gotta spike ran into a couple of bad strangers and we almost never saw him again okay guys We've, we've talked a lot about Mr. T's ascent, which was fast and furious, but the descent for Mr. T has been long and slow and, and candidly not awesome. Um, I don't know about you all, but I've definitely wondered what the last 37 years have been like for him. Kevin, how about you? What do you think about past prime Mr. T? Well, I think that makes him such a great topic because he seems almost frozen in ember because you know, like, you think about other people that we've talked about in 83, you know, like, George Brett was, had a Hall of Fame career, and then goes and shits his pants in the Bellagio, mm-hmm. but it's not as if he's still walking around in his Royals uniform, like, on the street, right. you know, uh, Mr. T is still walking around in his uniform, 
And mm-hmm. it's almost as like he's still living in 83. And yeah. the rest of us have kind of circled the sun a couple times and aged. Yeah. Um, he doesn't look that different. He's wearing the same vintage clothes other than the gold, as we've talked about. So, I, I, you know, the question is to me, and I, I wanted to like pose this question to Josh, is given that he is still living in 1983, and that has kind of precipitated his fading into almost self-parody, mm-hmm. if he had gone to you, and I know you were five, so let's just assume that you were, you know, 42 in, in 1983, and he drove to you in Michigan from the White House and said, Josh, I'm at the pinnacle. I'm Times Man of the Year in 1983. What should I do to make this never end? Like, what, what do you tell him? So I've given this question some thought. Um, and I, I want to say up front that obviously any of us with the benefit of hindsight have a tremendous advantage. And I don't want to demean Mr. T and the trajectory that, that ultimately happened for him. Um, but I think I've got three main points on this. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is that I think, and this is sort of an overarching meta point for him. I, I think he needs to remove himself from the sort of uh, writing of or creative development for whatever happens. And the evidence I give for that is that it seems like having looked over his career since 1983, the one big thing he came up with as a creative was a show called Pity the Tool, uh, which had one episode mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, where he essentially went in, he went all in on one line uh, that he thought would carry the day and bring him the series that he had always dreamed about uh, without his A-team supporting cast. And it centered around the line, uh, don't be dumb and hit your thumb. Um, <laughs> So he was like a Bob Vila, like an angry Bob Vila. Exactly. He's like a Bob Vila. And I think there were some high hopes for this in in some corners, uh, but but he didn't have it. So I think the first thing that we've got to do is he's just got to remove himself from certain parts of the creative process. Yeah, we need need to shut down Lawrence Turow Productions in 84. That's got to, we got to get stuff there. This is, this is, it's the Hippocratic Oath. First, first do no harm to your own career. I I think that's where we need to go. Yeah. Um, And then, the two things, so, so one is obvious, and then the other is just sort of a personal theme that's been in my family for a long time. The, the one obvious one is, and again, this is with the benefit of hindsight, there's one person who basically blew the doors off the business world, who sort of came from a similar trajectory, and that's obviously George Foreman. I'm, I'm looking up uh, celebrity net worth as George Foreman uh, at about 300 million. Mm. I, I don't know if that's exactly right, but it, it feels directionally correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say in 1983, Mr. T, as we've talked about in this podcast, probably had more potential brand impact identity than George Foreman did. I mean, we've, we've talked about how big he was. I don't know what the product is, if it's vitamin water, if it's a waffle machine, maybe a pancake <laughs> machine. But yeah. it, it feels like a happy breakfast thing with, with some punch to it makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I'm going I'm to debate against myself where I said we needed to retire Lawrence Turow Productions. I think we revive it and, and we start QVT, the, the <laughs> network. I mean, this, this guy could maybe sell anything. He pities yeah. different products. Like I pity. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. I actually have I actually have a little bit of a sub theme that might uh, that might build off that a little bit. So um, 
whenever anybody thinks about career advice in my mind, I think of my mother who is a, a career counselor at a local college in Michigan called Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan. And she had probably 2000 students come through her office and she gave over 90% of them the exact same advice with no real complexity added onto it, which is uh, computers, do something yeah. with computers. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I think Mr. T's QVT. I've actually I sort of wrote out a couple of these. And I, I won't I won't even pretend to do to do an impression, but yeah. th it's it's a tech theme, and I, I think there may have been some other discussion about Mr. T being involved in tech earlier. But I just had some quotes that that these are just off the cuff. None of them are very good, but I've got Mr. T does it on a keyboard. Mm -hmm. Mr. T loves the graphics. Mr. T loves Atari. Mr. T does his taxes one time and he does it right. And then, and this one I think has some legs. Mr. T loves Lotus one, two, three. <laughs> okay, so sort of, sort of a related question for you, Josh, as the um, financial advisor of the group. Celebrity net worth, which we take as gospel, has Lawrence Turow at a $5 million net worth and estimates his annual income at $240,000. If you had to guess what comprises that $240,000 annually, Where's he making his money? I think the the first one is my guess is there is a there are one or more central Asian countries, probably in the Stans, Kazakhstan, or yeah. the like, who are uh, experiencing the A team uh, on something like a 30, uh, 37 year delay. Uh, the Eastern Bloc has dissolved, and they are discovering the raw joy of Mr. T and his group, and they love it. They sit around laughing. I uh, picture TVs with antennas. They sit around laughing hysterically every night at it, everything he does, his inability to fly, all that kind of stuff. They I, can't get enough Baracus. Just more and more, it's on, he's on every channel, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and then the second category is, I feel like there might be some, some like knick-knack licensing royalties. And when I thought about this, I feel like the thing that pops to mind is, it's like some kind of a keychain with his mm -hmm. face on it that also doubles as an earring. Like it has a loop, it has mm -hmm. his face, it's got your keys. Somebody came up with it in 1984 and it just weirdly sells to tourists when they go to Chicago or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's about the extent of his marketability at this point. So, okay, I have, so I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask Kevin the same question and I'll sort of qualify it by saying, what percentage of his income do you think is some sort of, and, and Josh, feel free to chime in, is some sort of gold derivative market? And then how much money is he, how much money is he making on Cameo? Uh, and then the last question I have is, speaking of knickknacks, in the 80s, there was a Chia pet product called Chia Tea, which makes total sense. How much money is, did tea make on Chia Tea over the duration of that product? <laughs> my guess is my guess is that in today's dollars he made a, just shy of four thousand dollars on GFP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, then and then what else? What else is in his portfolio? Is it gold? Is it cameo? How else is he making two hundred and forty grand a year? I would probably take the under on that number. Is yeah. my guess just like doing some quick googling? I don't know about the residuals for the A team. I think that if he's making two hundred and forty thousand dollars, it's almost all A team money. I don't know what type of deal was structured. I saw that his, his jewelry, his gold collection in 2010 was appraised for just over six figures. So I, I think if he's tapped into that, I think it's not generating that kind of money. So I think when you piece together 
like appearances at like maybe Comic-Con type things and yeah. cameos, maybe some like odd 40 year old birthday parties where he's flown in. I, I, I think that's, I think, I don't think it's reaching a 240. That seems high. Well, which which leaves me to believe that to whatever extent it even approaches 240, Josh is right, that it, it's, it's 80 or 90% that he's on channel zero 432, 11, and 27 on basic cable in, in Kazakhstan. Like that, that's the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> I, should, I should say one thing. He has been recently in a Snickers commercial. Yes. Good call. So I, I, I don't know how much Mr. T would pull for a Snickers commercial. Matt, you're the only one who's been in a commercial on this yeah. podcast. Yeah, I think that's I think that's two thirty five of his two forty. So I, I, I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit worried about what next year looks like for, for Turo. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's 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 circle back to the the ultimate question of this episode, which is was Mr. T 1983's Man of the Year? And to to sort of set it up, I want to I just want to read a couple quotes uh, from T, and then I want to then explain the rules of how we're going to vote. So a couple quotes from T. Number one. To the women and children, T stands for tender. To the bad guys and thugs, it stands for tough. He says, letting out a loose growl, I'm tough when I have to be, tender when I should be. Another quote, I pity the fool who drinks soy milk. (laughs) (laughs) And then (laughs) the final quote I want to share to just to set the stage. That's a great quote. It's a good one. I remember one time I tried to pity this fool. He told me his name was Jeff. He was married. He pulled out his wallet and showed me three pictures of his kids. Kelly, Robert, Brittany. Real cute kids. Don't get too close, man. It's hard to pity a fool if you get too close. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great PSA. Uh, Okay, which brings us to to the vote. And again, the question is, who really should have been Time Magazine's Person of the Year for 1983? The the answer uh, in reality was who of who won it was Ronald Reagan, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's who should have won it. Uh, I'm going to propose 10 nominees. You all can do write-ins if you want, and we're gonna give 10 points to your, your first place vote, five points to your second place vote, and two points to your third place vote. And just as clarification, when we say person of the year, we are asking who had the best 1983? not uh, who was the most famous. We're not asking, um, you know, who was the most influential. We're just saying who had the best year. In no particular order, we're going to start with the five people that are sort of mandated by recent memories bylaws. And those are the winner of the award, uh, Ronald Reagan, the winner of the Time Magazine Award. Jim Steinman, of course, the writer and producer of Total Eclipse of the Heart. George Brett, who had a great season, but is most notable for his tar incident and then a couple decades later for defecating in his pants once or twice a year the next one is um, is sort of a duo it's a, a buddy movie eddie murray and cal ripkin world series winners number one and two in the american league mvp voting joseph williams the lead singer of toto who wrote and performed the great hit africa uh number six has been canceled so i think it's a, probably a tough vote but michael jackson number seven astronaut sally ride the first woman in space Number eight, actor Alan Alda, who uh, that year sort of retired MASH and in one of the most watched TV shows in the history of TV. Number nine, Harrison Ford, who was the star of Return of the Jedi, the biggest box office success of the year. And then number 10, basketball star Dr. J, who along with Moses Malone led the 76ers to a 
NBA title. And Mr. T, obviously. And of course, sorry, thank you, Kevin. And of course, Mr. T, uh, number 11 on the list, number one in our hearts, uh, Lawrence Turow. So I'm gonna give everyone uh, just a couple minutes to assemble their, um, their top three, and then we'll reconvene. So while, while people are thinking, uh, Matt, I wanted to read one of my favorite reviews I ever read of a movie, yes. uh, which was of DC Cab. The conclusion was, uh, by any rational measure, DC Cab is pretty terrible. Um, and, uh, the, the, and the other final word was, the script is ostensibly a comedy, but most of the humor is unintentional. <laughs> Okay, the tallies are in. Uh, there's five of us on the panel. Kevin, I'm gonna let you go last. Uh, Judd, we're gonna start with you. Why don't you give us your your number three, two, and one in whatever order you would, you would like. Okay, so I, I'm probably gonna break the rules here. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you mentioned this, the, the way I viewed the question is, who were the most important people of the year to you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I'm gonna stick with that. Um, and I actually, I actually have a fourth uh, so I'll say all four in order. Okay. Yep. Um, number, number four slash three is unquestionably Eddie Murray. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because I'll just, I'll just get out of the way because Matt, you won person of the year every year for me until a few years ago. <laughs> and so since Eddie was the most important person to you, he by, by definition became very important to me. So Eddie would have been the name that I thought of the most uh, aside from the next people I'm going to talk. Number so, two, so, wait, Judd, first of all, thank you. Yeah, Second of, of all, that's the biggest backhanded uh, compliment you've ever given me because basically what you said was a few years ago, I, I ceased to be an important person. Just not <laughs> so as thank important. You. Not as important. Not as important. <laughs> thank you. I'm just kidding. Um, number, uh, after, I guess, ahead of Eddie Murray would be Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. I remember when Ronald Reagan left office, I was legitimately nervous. There was something. There was something about him that was so um, uh, comforting, and, and actually, Matt, you 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 know this is true because I had a lot of confusion when I was young. I had trouble distinguishing between uh, whether or not Ronald Reagan was family or not. Right. There was something about him that felt like a grandfather. Yep. So he was very important to me. Um, number one is sort of a joint response. So I think it's, it's hard for people like me to remember that there was ever a Rocky three because what happened with Rocky four changed all of our lives. But before that, Rocky three was my Rocky four. I used to watch it every day with my friends on VHS. And there was no duo that I thought about more in 1983 than Stallone and T. They were the people that were on my mind every single day because I watched it many, many times, and I always, always thought about their second fight. And so for me, 83 was Eddie Murray, Ronald Reagan, Stallone and T, and if you count Matt, Matt would be number one, but if we wanna remove him from the list for posterity purposes, Stallone and T are number one. I'll, I will happily accept the write-in ballot, but I, I'll, I have, I got, I got Murray in third, I got Reagan in second, and I know you're splitting it with Stallone, but I'm gonna, I'll keep T in, in, in the one spot. That's fine. Uh, good, Ex- obviously excellent ballot, excellent ballot. You. Uh, Juice, you're up. So uh, my number three actually is Alan Alda. Um, I, I frankly, I remember just people talking about this, this frankly sonic boom of the end of MASH. And it was basically like the biggest thing ever in the moment, I think. And uh, even though apparently he isn't Jewish, 
he was the one actor that I always pictured basically hanging out at my grandparents' country club in Florida and being everyone's favorite person. And just the image of him makes me happy. So I want, I want him on my, on my ballot. Number two, uh, and Matt, you sort of alluded to this, but I'm going to go with Dr. J and Moses Malone. It probably Mo- I, Moses was the MVP that year of the finals. Um, but the only team uh, in a seven-year span uh, to win the NBA finals that didn't have Magic or Bird, uh, pretty impressive stuff. Yep. Um, and then uh, this is going to be politically incorrect, but uh, I feel a little, not to overly reference basketball, but I feel a little bit about the number one spot here, the way I feel about LeBron in the last 15 years, which is that basically he's the MVP every year. And on any objective fair measure, there's literally no argument against it. And to me, MJ, Michael Jackson was that same, he was that same phenomenon. Like there was nobody bigger. There was nobody more important. Uh, Juice, Juice, just just to be clear, you know we're recording because <laughs> just just so that we have this on posterity, Juice is, is Team Jacko. When yeah. people recontextualize history for their own purposes, they're, they have their own agenda. I'm just purely answering on the pure merits of what I think is happening cool. here. And, uh, that, okay, uh, hand off to UCA. Who, what's your ballot look like? Um, it, it, borrowing themes, I think, from both of you guys. First of all, Judd's I think Judd gives a wonderful testament to brotherly love, and I actually think it's quite sweet. Um, the Juice, I actually thought about your, I excluded a lot of people because I thought they were one trick ponies. Um, so I, I get that theme. And I think there's a lot of people who just excelled in single areas. So I found myself looking at people and nominating people who I thought had real crossover global reach and appeal. Um, so that brought me number three to Reagan. Yeah. Um, and, and the only thing I would add is, and I, some of this, much of this is still relevant in my life today. There's, the, he, there's a quote from him at the beginning of Def Leppard's The Gods of War, <laughs> where he says, I've replayed it a million times. I actually ran to it yesterday morning, where it says he counted on America to be passive. He counted wrong. But yeah. that quote alone is you're going to get to my top three. Uh, <laughs> number two, I, I had Dr. J and Mr. T as two and one respectively. And then I realized as I wrote their names down, I just like, it's nice. It's like two, it's like two letters, a period and a letter. So I, I liked the flow of Dr. J and Mr. T. Yeah. Um, I think it's Gaddafi, by the way. Yeah, it's Gaddafi. Oh, it's Gaddafi. Okay. Um, and Dr. J, in the, in the same sense that I felt like he transcended his lane, mm-hmm. and Mr. And I, you know, it's it's you have to you have to watch that just because Mr. T is fresh in our mind that he doesn't, you know, that doesn't automatically elevate him to number one. But like after today's conversation, it's so clear that it's a runaway. Like I don't even think number two is close to this guy. And Judd, like with the kids at home. Every morning, I've been watching different YouTube training montages. Of course. And, and, and your, your, your question that I, like, when I saw Rocky Three, I thought, how is Stallone, how do you find a villain who's yeah. like, you, you can't yeah. do it. Yeah. Like, he is, there is, and, and like, 
to and and then I we met Drago yeah. and missed I think there was probably a period in my life of 10 or 15 years where I actually thought Mr. T and Clubber were weaker characters because Drago was just such a strong unifying character absolutely only recently have I gone back and revisited in these clips Mr. T and like when he's when you first see him in the Nike shirt and the Mohawk running and punching oh, and you. like you just see, like I've watched and paused him walking into the ring and pushing people and glaring at people <laughs> so many times. It's so beautiful and so pure. <laughs> He's on a total resurgence with me in terms of that character. I, I'm, this is another podcast. I think Clubber may, there's a Clubber Drago discussion to be had. Wow. I'll leave it at that. So, uh, we're, we're, wow. See, so, yeah, we're not going to answer that here, okay. but I do have two quick questions for you. Number okay. one, that Def Leppard song, um, how many times have you listened to it while running and then grunted and spat while, while that voiceover <laughs> happened? There, there's actually, <laughs> there's, if you really want to get into it, there's, there's, it goes into after that, don't shoot shotgun, where it goes, he's so dangerous. And then... <laughs> then you slam your fist. So you will see me running in my neighborhood, mouthing the Reagan quote, and then slamming my fist. <laughs> Don't shoot shotgun. Christian, Christian, the, yeah. uh, just so you know, I, I looked it up. The quote, uh, that quote was directed at all terrorists everywhere. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. I think it was in the wake of the Libyan thing though. Oh yeah. Uh, my, my, my last question for CA, Alan Alda didn't, I, I, I know you and Alda, I feel like you had like a, you had you had a beef with Alda. You want to you want to describe it? No, I I I'm I'm going to say this and this is absolutely true it's a family issue. <laughs> and 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 I will leave that for another discussion. Okay. <laughs> I'll, um, he, he insulted someone in our family. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll uh, leave, well enough said. Okay, I'll go through mine super quickly. In the third spot, I have Harrison Ford, who that year starred in the biggest movie of the year, Return of the Jedi. He's two years removed from the first Indiana Jones and a year removed from the sequel. He's the biggest movie star in the world. Um, and he finally uh, wins Carrie Fisher over in the third part of the trilogy. Um, in the second spot, I have our titular character, Mr. T. It was in any other year, I would have had him as number one. He had an epic year. This is certainly top of the mountain for T and for anyone on the list, other than of course, Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken. I am, I am completely unobjective here, but I can tell you that in 1983, I could not separate psychologically between myself and Eddie Murray. I, every at bat, I felt uh, the bat in my hand. When, you, when I look at photos of Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken celebrating and drinking champagne, um, I think of that season when I led the American League in, in OPS, when I hit 33 homers. Um, I, I, I see myself with a mustache um, and, and a beautiful jerry curl. Like, I don't, I, I don't see anyone else. So I, that was my best year. My best year was 1983. So I gave Eddie 10 points there. Kevin, uh, yeah. your episode. We're, we're, yeah. we're dying to hear. So uh, number three, I feel a little hesitant because of my respect for the Anthony family, but my number three was Alda uh, for, for two reasons. One, I once asked my dad genuinely if he could eat dinner with anybody living or dead, who would it be? And he said Alan Alda. 
which seems like an extremely modest choice. When you can think of all of humanity, that that's the person you want to do with. It also seems like exceedingly obtainable. Like when you could like say like Winston Churchill or, you know, anybody to say like Alan Alda seems uh, uh, very, very, you know, kind of like very low hanging fruit. Um, the other reason like Alda is one of, one of my good friends, uh, uh, Jason Feldman, his grandfather, whenever his grandmother was watching MASH, he would come in the room and turn off the TV and say, there's nothing funny about war, Virginia. And that's one of my favorite quotes. Um, so Alan Alda's number three. Uh, number two, to me, I think there's a huge gap between um, the first two and the rest. And this is obviously, it's the topics that I chose. I, I think George Brett's number two. Um, I think um, both in terms of he had a great year, um, it wasn't his best year, but he had a very good year. Uh, I think in terms of like symbolizing 1983, given that I separate all history in between pre-Pine Tar and after Pine Tar, it's hard for me not to, to single out Brett as having a tremendous impact on the year. Mm -hmm. And I think he just represents the trends we discussed of, of unbridled id and the lack of repression. Um, so I'm putting him as number two and number one, I think it, there's a, there's a growing consensus. It's Mr. T. Um, I think he dominated politics. He dominated <laughs> movies. He was budding as humanitarian. I had no idea about the work he was doing in data management with the top. <laughs> um, that just to me cements it. I think Mr. T, um, instead of Ronald Reagan, and I think Reagan shared the war, the award with with Yuri Andropov, it should have just been Mr. T's smiling face. Um, the picture I would have chosen is the one of the White House and with Nancy Reagan on his lap. The picture the Washington Post had, I want everybody to look at it. There's something about it where he looks so at peace with her on the lap. He had just gotten a kiss. And there's something about him that just almost looks like flaccid. He looks so <laughs> peaceful and his mouth is open almost like childlike um and i think uh it is just one of the best pictures i've ever seen in my life so i i have a theory about that because i've seen that picture i wondered if murdoch from the a-team had slipped in and had injected him with a sleeping aid to just <laughs> sort of calm his nerves before the flight home. back before yeah. the long flight back um Wow, great, great ballots, everyone, except for Juice, of course, who left Mr. T off, off the ballot. Just why don't we, why don't we recap? Uh, in, in third place, we actually have a tie. So uh, thanks to um, Team Jacko, uh, Michael Jackson tied with Dr. J. I think we're going to give the jump ball to Dr. J on that one in third place. I couldn't be more pleased to have the Eddie Murray, Cal Rifkin uh, buddy movie in, in second place in thanks in no small part to Judd and I. And then not surprisingly, the, the right full-time magazine person of the year for 1983 was Lawrence Tarot, AKA Mr. T. Uh, we, we did it guys. We, we did answer the question. I think we corrected a wrong uh, for history. Uh, I, I'm still, I still think there's probably, to Christian's point, another full episode about Clubber versus Drago and ultimate Rocky villain supremacy. But I think we did answer an important question about an important year. So I, I think we got it right if you define the question in the right way, which is, if you think about the man of the year, meaning that 
he is the embodiment of 1983, I think it has to be Mr. T. Because Ronald Reagan or Michael Jackson, were they more iconic or influential over 1983? Probably. But I think you you could take both of those people out of that year. Like um, Ronald Reagan could also be the man of the year at many other times of year in the 1980s. He's still like a dominant intellectual force or he was up until 2016 over the Republican party. Um, and Michael Jackson, you know, had maybe nothing that reached the heights of Thriller, but was maybe the, the most iconic musician for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Mr. T, you really can't take out of 1983. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're developing a theme on recent memories about what it meant to be in 1983, I, I think he's the man of the year. Hey, Mr. T here. Have you ever been accused of doing something you didn't do? Well, it happened to me in Mexico City. And I got thrown in jail for it. Yes, yes. Uh, an emphatic yes, Kevin. Uh, thank you, um, for the story. Um, thank you for helping us uh, right or wrong. Uh, thank you to the, our panelists uh, this in this episode, uh, Judd, Josh, and Christian. And thank you to all you listeners who suffered through over an hour of deep dive into the year Lawrence Turow had and for helping us answer the question, um, was Mr. T the rightful person of the year? Clearly the answer was yes. Be well, take care everyone. Thank you.